0: Welcome to the Italian Renaissance Podcast, where we discuss the culture and art of 15th and 16th century Italy. I'm your host, Lawrence Cianangeli. Andiamo avanti. Here we go again, Renaissance people, cruising through the Venetian Quattrocento, trying to understand the cultural and historical circumstances that impacted stylistic development in Venice. We have thus far solidified our sense of Venetian identity of early Renaissance painting in Venice and palace architecture as a transition from Venetian Gothic to the Renaissance style. We are going to continue to linger at the end of the Quattrocento and into the Cinquecento as we turn our attention to sculpture in Renaissance Venice, that is 1400s, end of the 1400s, and into the 1500s. For this discussion, we are going to focus on what is likely the most prominent and influential circle of Venetian sculptors, the Lombardo family, starting with the father, Pietro Lombardo. We have seen this very structure before with the Bellini family, where Jacopo began the painting workshop and trained his sons, Giovanni and Gentile, who are typically regarded as having learned from and expanded upon the teachings and works of their father. Indeed, we are talking about contemporaries here. Should we recall the San Job altarpiece by Giovanni Bellini, it was Pietro Lombardo who designed the stone framework around the painting, which Giovanni mimics to create that in situ effect, remember, meaning that painting is interacting with the actual architecture that it is designed to accompany. Now, as his name implies, Pietro Lombardo, who lived from 1435 to 1515, arrived in Venice from Lombardy. Uh, Pietro was from Corona, a small town within the area of Bergamo, the part of Lombardy which came under Venetian control in the early Quattrocento. This informs what our concept of Venetian Renaissance is, right? We are understanding the Republic of Venice and its style as beyond the lagoon, and understanding that these artists are bringing mainland Italian stylistic elements with them, just as we saw in the development of the Venetian Palace facade. Pietro arrives in Venice proper around 1467 with his sons Antonio and Tullio. Like Giovanni Bellini, Tullio will leave a more prominent artistic legacy than his father or brother, Tullio Lombardo. Okay. Before diving in to look at specific works, I want to brainstorm a bit about how artistic exchanges culminated in the widespread popularity of classical revival, the Alantica style. I have maintained that we should exercise caution when making large claims about the impact of the Florentine Renaissance on Venice and how exactly that exchange happened. I want to stress that this is not a one-way street. The Lombardo workshop, expertly in the case of Tullio, executed works in Venice with direct references to sculptures from antiquity, which was very likely popularized through artists like Donatello in the early Quattrocento when he was working in Padua. We know Mantegna and Jacopo Bellini were influenced in their drawings and paintings by ancient sculpture. Venice itself is not an ancient site, and as such, any references to antiquity would have to come from outside of Venice, namely their mainland territories, or even sculptural collections being imported to Venice. Yet, Recent scholarship is revealing that the work of the Lombardo family is more revolutionary than simply being inspired by antiquity. They innovate its forms to their contemporary audience and location. A brief note to something I hope to come back to in a later episode is that upon the expulsion of the Medici in Florence, Michelangelo spent about a year in Venice in the 1490s. What seems very likely is that this young and impressionable Michelangelo was directly inspired by the sculpture works of Tullio Lombardo and how Tullio's style presented antiquity in this contemporary Venetian context. So we're talking about a volleying of sorts, a back-and-forth of artistic and stylistic vocabulary that could have only happened by reciprocal and mutualistic exchange. Just as Florentine artists influenced Venice, Venetian artists influenced Florence. This is the subject of my current research, and I will come back to you with a fuller explanation of that relationship in the near future. With that in mind... What exactly was Tullio Lombardo doing in the 1490s? First, we're going to consider Tullio as an inventor of a new type of sculpture. Then we will look at the monumental tomb sculpture, although these projects were happening at the same time. I want to turn our attention to a familiar space, the Ca d'Oro, the Venetian Gothic palace we discussed in the last episode. That house, now a museum, holds the portrait known as the Ca Doro Relief, or the Ca Doro Couple. It is among the earliest examples of Tulio's innovation. The dating of this work has a wide range, yet it seems all but confirmed that this sculpture was completed at least before fourteen ninety nine. This is the year of the publication of of Francesco Colonna's Machia Polyphili," difficult to say, or Polifilo's Strife of Love in a Dream." It is a completely bizarre work that's accompanied by a large series of woodblock prints. It included a direct reference to this sculpture by Tullio Lombardo as it relates to the characters Rancilia and Certulius. A second Direct References Sir Tulio Lombardo. Do we hear that? Tulius is the name in the book, Sir Tulio, right? It's like latinized. So if that book was printed in 1499 and the sculpture is seen in it in reference to the artist, then the sculpture had to come before it, right? Side note. this text is likewise known for the language it is written in, which is an eccentric combination of classical Latin, Venetian vernacular, and even hints of Greek. Sort of like the art we're looking at. I've read a hefty chunk of this book, and I have to say um, it is the book equivalent of riding a roller coaster, which may or may not include the bouts of queasiness and dizziness due to this extremely complicated language. I'm not saying I understood everything, but I did my best. The prints are beautiful, though, and even further demonstrate the intense focus on classical revival happening in Venice, and in this case, appearing as imagined dream, like right? It's Polyphilo's Strife of Love in a Dream, imagined architecture in a dreamscape, full of Greco-Roman and even ancient Egyptian architecture. It is a marvelous book to both try to read and look at. So back to the reliefs, the actual reliefs, not the print of the reliefs we see in the books. What do we see? Two bus-sized figures, a male and a female, carved in such depth that we are very close to a sculpture in the round rather than a relief we're talking about heavily idealized features here with a magnificent sense of expressiveness in their faces. This is achieved by the carved out pupils, their parted lips, and the different directions they seem to be looking in, neither engaging the viewer nor one another. These figures feel alive, yet are complemented by rigorous geometry. They protrude from a square background. The hair of both figures form two circular shapes, deliberately styled, so to speak, above the neck, creating two nearly symmetrical, rounded shapes, as well as highlighting the exceptional sensuality of their necks and the skill of carving the anatomy as such. Think about, I don't know, Dracula... Right. The neck is a, is a point of sensual entry. Okay. The hairstyles are contemporary Venetian, but they appear to be in Roman clothing, ancient Roman clothing, particularly the toga that the male is wearing. Still, the actual sculpting of the hair in these deliberate, like, circular coils, it resembles Gothic sculpture more so than ancient Roman sculpture. I'm not sure if you know what tirali are. They're these small, circular, cracker-like things popular in Tuscany. The hair reminds me of them. You even roll up a piece of salami and you stick it through, and you eat the tirali with salami. It's fantastic. Okay, that's what the hair reminds me of. My little, my little tangent there. Interestingly, the female figure overlaps the male. Her down cutting low, revealing her exposed breasts with a flower carved in between them. We see both figures are not quite nude, but give direct reference to classically sensualized and exposed anatomy without being lewd or vulgar. It's the difference between a nude in art and like a vulgar nakedness. Not really the same thing, okay? These are very much like portrait busts, but the sense of perfection tells us that these are not the true likenesses of anyone in particular, and so have left their identities to debate. Tullio signed this work below the male figure, which says, Tullius Lombardus, and then an F, which presumably is short for Fetch It, translated to, Tullio Lombardo made this the artist has signed his work, a practice seen more and more as the identity of the artist becomes centralized during the Renaissance period. To that, it has been proposed that this is a self-portrait of the artist with his wife. Others suggest it could be a certain contemporary Venetian or Um, of even classical subjects, literary subjects, or simply as exercises in classical style with no particular identities in mind at all. I'm not sure this is the most crucial aspect of this work, especially since no evidence has surfaced to make us think one way or the other. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Renaissance people. If you are enjoying the Italian Renaissance podcast, I have good news. We're now active on Patreon. You can show your love for the show by becoming a patron and get access to additional resources, information, and artworks. Better yet, those who join the Renaissance Master or Renaissance Patron tier will get access to at least one additional podcast episode each month. My goal is to ensure that the main podcast remains a free, accessible source for everyone. Become a patron today through the link in the show notes to support the continued production of new episodes and help build and maintain this community. The Italian Renaissance Shop is now also active on Etsy, linked in the show notes. Sport our logo or choose from a growing selection of Italian art-inspired designs. Discounts are offered to select Patreon tiers as well. Your support has my immortal gratitude. Now, enjoy the show. A final critical aspect of this work is what is referred to as polychromy, meaning it used different colors. This is a big deal, folks. Typically, the idea, proliferation, and preference for pristine white marble comes from, in part, the Renaissance you see a lot of new objects appearing since sculptures were still coming right out of the ground. They are today, too, but there was a focus to kind of uncover these. Or um, some would have lost their paint in other ways. But marble sculptures in antiquity would have been painted. As of the time of this recording... April 2023, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City actually has a show where they have painted copies of ancient works to give a sense of how they would have looked in antiquity. Frankly, some of it is pretty striking for better or worse, I did go to that show and posted some of the photos I took there, um, to the, the podcast Instagram. So go check that out if you want an idea of what, like, painted marble sculptures looked like in antiquity or how the Met imagines they looked in antiquity. In any case, the Alantica style in the Renaissance is not characterized by the classical painting of sculptures. It wasn't known to them as far as we know. We call that monochrome, monochrome right? Single color, one pristine white hue over the entirety of the marble, give or take some veins. Bronze is slightly different because you might actually have gold gilding on it, so it's not technically monochrome. So those are your your, your terms there, polychrome and monochrome. So, Tulio's marble couple was actually painted, in part. That's that's what we're getting at here, which was not standard. Um The background and eye pupils had black pigment. The lips had some type of red. That means that the white figures would have popped out of the background, because it was black, okay? And their glances would have been even more lifelike, with that bit of color added to it. This manner of sculpting is novel, and it relied on ancient sources as much as contemporary ones, especially in arts coming in from the Netherlands, just like we saw with Giovanni Bellini and his oil paintings. There is an entire book on this called Tullio Lombardo, an Ideal Portrait Sculpture in Renaissance Venice from 1490 to 1530 by the um author Allison Looks, a scholar who likewise served as a curator for an exhibition on Tulio Lombardo. So I feel like she knows her stuff here. She precisely summarizes how Tulio produced a new type of sculpture by combining his sources. She says, quote, the Cadoro Relief, consummately embodies Tullio Lombardo's determination to fuse his experiences of varied ancient and modern sources into a new kind of creation. Its essential form echoes a type of Roman funerary stele, with allusions also to a portrait type representing husband and wife, which occurs in northern European paintings and prints of the 15th century. The northern portraits owe much to the same Roman ancestry, end quote. Do we understand what she is saying here? And do we see how this is a very similar circumstance to how Giovanni Bellini arrived at his San Job altarpiece via Netherlandish and classical influences, the same altarpiece that Tullio's father Pietro Lombardo had a hand in sculpting? These Moments of cultural innovation are both complex and complementary. I want to be clear that the Cadoro relief is not a one-time drop-in-the-bucket sort of piece, but an entirely new sculpture type. Tullio builds upon that type with his later Bacchus and Ariadne, from the first decade of the 1500s, which is now in Vienna, looks is explicitly clear that with the cador relief quote tulio created a new sculptural genre his bacchus and ariadne belongs to the same genre end quote though there are major differences and developments in the genre such as the closeness of the figures and the un, uh, and the identifiable classical personas of bacchus the god of wine, and Ariadne, right? Because we did not know who they were in the Cadora relief. We know who Bacchus and Ariadne are, um, which is a story coming directly from ancient Roman poetry of the writers Ovid or Catullus. I feel we have adequately covered Tullio's role as inventor or innovator of sculptural form and his undoubted tendency towards classicism. His most important work is that of the funerary monument of Doge Andrea Vendramin, that was completed between 1489 and 1495. Have a look at this. Get this in front of you. Try to get an image of the uh, Tula Lombardo's Doge Andrea Vendramin tomb. It is in the form of a Roman triumphal arch completed with a wide range of Roman classical architectural vocabulary. Columns with composite capitals hold up a rounded arch with a coffered ceiling. We talked about that before. Roman coffering, this kind of uh, squares within squares that might have a flower in them that go underneath uh, an arch. This is another great example of polychromy, but not painted this time. We see the use of different colored marbles, just like the ancient Roman pantheon. Right, Although the effect is subtle, it allows for a sense of depth and contrast. It is adorned with both relief sculptures that closely resemble Roman sarcophagi and full figures in the round, many of which are rendered similarly to the two classicizing reliefs that we saw, the Cadoro and the Bacchus and Ariadne. The resting deceased figure of Doge Venderman is elevated on a slab of gorgeous pink and black marble supported by eagles. He is surrounded by figures, including marvelously rendered soldiers in Roman armor, Ancient Roman armor. Look directly behind those two soldier figures flanking the doge. There is a solid black marble or granite background. I'm actually not sure what stone it is. Just like in the reliefs, which were painted instead, right? So he painted the background of the reliefs black. In this case, he's using a black stone to create that contrast. And, and it really does create dramatic contrast with the white marble figures that stand in front of it i first saw this technique in john lorenzo bernini's santa bibiana from around 1625 and when i saw that i thought he was an absolute genius turns out tulio lombardo was doing it more than 125 years earlier in venice yet We see a strain in the Venetian tendency to try to mute excessive personal grandeur as the doge now is laid to rest like a Roman emperor. It's no wonder the popes might find that concept attractive or that in the 1800s, Napoleon took special interest in the piece and had it removed from its original location in the church of Santa Maria dei Servi. It was later re-erected in the church of Santi Giovanni and Paolo after the collapse of Napoleon's empire. And that is where it re- remains today. So if you want to go see the fra- what's left of it, you want to go to Santi Giovanni Paolo in Venice. right? Though many of the figures were actually dispersed. Not all of them. The most notable figure is of Adam, which is actually now in the Met, it's that very same work that has been argued extensively to have inspired Michelangelo during his brief visit to Venice, and that was um, actually accompanied by an eve, which is now lost. My first exposure to Tulio Lombardo was my, my visit to the Met. I didn't actually know who he was, and I knew very, very little about Venetian sculpture. But I remember I walked into this small room, and it was kind of in a niche on a pedestal-like thing, and I looked at that and I said, okay, there's something really magnificent about this. Who is this, and what is this? And I'm seeing Quattrocento Venetian sculpture for the first time, thinking, okay, this guy, this guy's a big deal. The Venderman tomb was not the first that Tullio worked on, but it was the first collaboration in which he was given license to work as he wished by his father Pietro, right? Because the Lombardo workshop, they're still working together. The result of Tullio's agency and taste is a clear triumph for classical revival in Venice and an absolutely essential work in how we understand the development of Renaissance sculpture as a whole, as I said before, from a series of mutual exchanges in styles and ideas. The Lombardo Workshop has quite a large opus that a sculpture lover might enjoy diving into, so I encourage that. I have treated three of their works, and only in brief, focusing specifically on Tulio so I could present to you the most concise but essential details on how sculpture was being innovated and expanded in Renaissance Venice. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and we will come back to Tulio in the future. As I said, I'm working on this project, and I'd like to present that to you guys when it's done as always, I will be posting these images on the Instagram and the Facebook, so come give us a follow and share some of our content with your fellow art history nerds. So many of you have reached out to me, and I love that, so do not be shy and send me a message or an email so we can chat about these things. I hope I haven't ruined any honeymoons with my travel suggestions or sent anyone off to bad dinners in Florence. Keep the reviews coming, guys, please. We are soaring at a solid 4.8 on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. A written review is even more appreciated. Thank you, everyone, who has given financial support to the project. If you would like to do so, that link is in the show notes, and I am forever in your debt. I want to thank you all for your participation and engagement. Until next time, arrivederci.